The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 6, Part 13. Enabling orderly coexistence of sovereignties by agreement on human rights and obligations. In the early 2020s, Australia has arrived at a pivotal point in its history, a point where we could move towards securing well-being and sustainable prosperity for the future or away from it. Similarly, we are at a point where we could move towards our own destruction as a species or away from it. There is a growing awareness among Australians about the precariousness of their future in the hitherto lucky country, and particularly a concern that future generations will have less access than the current generation to a peaceful life with civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights and benefits. As such, it might be expected that Australians would be open to Prospect 2, and in contemplation of the gloomy outlook for their children, many might well reason that if governments won't proactively give them rights that are essential for their protection then the only option left is to simply take them before it is too late. Otherwise, the current generation of Australians will be complicit in crimes against their own children and other crimes that have, until now, been committed by governments and corporations without the permission of Australians. For instance, climate crimes, crimes of entry into illegal wars, theft of public resources and ecological extinctions. Once any human nation knows about these crimes, and in the internet age we can hardly avoid knowing, and once we know that there is something that could be done to stop these crimes, there is no excuse for delay, especially if the solution is readily available. To the extent that Australia's current governance system is the cause of these crimes, the solution is readily available. As such, it is time to propose a starting draft of a new section in Australia's constitution enshrining human rights and obligations. However, it will be important to design this in such a way as to ensure that, one, rights can be realised to the full extent possible by everyone, not just by some, and two, obligations to protect those rights and the benefits that can come from them cannot be unlawfully escaped by governments. Full realisation of all human rights and obligations has not yet been attempted in any draft of a Charter or Bill of Rights considered in Australia. But full realisation by all on an equal basis is essential. It is what Australians need if they are to break free of the mindsets locking us into wars, disproportionate fear of terrorism, theft of Indigenous property and other illegitimate state actions such as those which impose the subsidisation by the public of private fossil fuel businesses. Half measures and frameworks which allow governments to continue to limit or withhold rights when it is contrary to the public interest to do so will be insufficient for the purpose of shedding these destructive mindsets. And anything less than the full measure of the primary human right, self-determination, will defeat the purpose entirely. This is because self-determination is central to the realisation of all the other rights. Unless each of us is able to freely determine our political status and freely pursue our economic, social and cultural development, 
none of the other rights can be assured to any of us. No bill or charter that has been drafted in Australia has yet included a grant of self-determination as a right. As I have suggested above, this is probably because governments are frightened of the loss of centralised and exclusive power that would be implied. But it may be also because it is difficult to imagine how power might be exercised simultaneously by more than one sovereign entity. It is hard to imagine how multiple sovereignties may coexist, accustomed as we are to being governed by a unitary power outside all of us and to which we willingly conform in the often misplaced hope that order will prevail. It is hard to imagine how each of us might exercise self-determination without chaos and a clash of wills. It has been hard to imagine this for many hundreds of years, and this is why nations, both autocratic and democratic, have always fallen back on the notion that it is necessary to have a unitary sovereign will, one authority located above us all, with a unique right to freely determine what shall and shall not be permitted in the rights and freedoms of all others, and particularly to determine when the nation shall go to war. And yet, the times call on us to imagine how full rights of self-determination for all might be achieved, not just because Australia, like the rest of the world, is on the brink of life-threatening chaos, but also because the Australian nation has been served in the Uluru Statement from the Heart with the most plangent and entirely legitimate call for a coexistence of sovereignties. There is a major piece of unfinished business in our nation's founding, and until it is amicably solved, Australia will be unable to lay claim to being a truly democratic and free country. Australians in the 21st century have slowly come to recognise that First Nations sovereignty has never been ceded, and that therefore it is necessary, both in law and in conscience, to find a way to organise a new political and governance system so that these two sovereignties can coexist peacefully. Some may assume this can be achieved through a treaty, which without doubt is necessary. But depending on how it is framed and how it is connected with or disconnected from the Constitution, a treaty might not necessarily deliver the full measure of change in governance necessary to secure ongoing justice. It might declare peace between First Nations and the Australian government of the day. But if negotiated outside a more inclusive framework, such as a people's constitution, it would not necessarily set up the systems by which just rules of law may therefrom be made and peace might be secured and managed on an ongoing basis by a collegiate Australian nation as a whole, a nation in which all members make a mutual commitment to henceforth respect and protect each other's rights. In the absence of such a mutual commitment, a treaty would lack a solid foundation and would accordingly be tenuous. Two sovereignties of the Crown and First Nations might be temporarily reconciled, but a lasting reconciliation, where ongoing justice can be relied upon, will require a holistic pact that encompasses a mutual commitment between First Nations people and non-Indigenous people. A pact acknowledged in a constitution which also accepts that human rights are the equal entitlement of all, and that unless and until everyone is confident that they each have all human rights, in full and on an equal basis, justice simply cannot have been done. 
Any treaty negotiated in the absence of an agreement on rights for all would mean that Australia could not really make good on the request from Uluru for, quote, a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination, unquote. As such, we will need to make the Constitution fit for the purpose of installing and sustaining a treaty with First Nations, and we will need to do this by enshrining equal human rights for all in full. Providentially, help is available to both First Nations and the Australian Parliament for this purpose in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the UNDRIP. This declaration has been supported by the Australian Government, albeit only as a non-legally binding document. As I noted in Chapter 1, Australia was one of only four nations to vote against the UNDRIP when it was first adopted in 2007. 144 other nations voted in favour and 11 abstained. In 2009, Australia reversed its rejection, but regrettably, its commitment to the declaration remains muted and there is still a sense in which Australian governments have not got past their fear that it will disrupt their territorial integrity and perhaps enhance the rights of Indigenous citizens vis-à-vis all others. However, there is nothing in the UNDRIP that enhances the rights of one group over any other. Instead, the Declaration makes it clear that the rights established in it, and for that matter the things Indigenous people are calling for in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, are nothing more and nothing less than the natural and equal entitlement of all humans. It confers nothing more on the world's Indigenous peoples than the rights that non-Indigenous peoples would want and would assume they are entitled to, particularly in relation to property and security of title on land. In particular, it does not allow Indigenous people to do to non-Indigenous people what was done to Australia's Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders by the British colonial power. It does not allow Indigenous people to illegally dispossess others of property to which they hold valid title. And it does not allow an Indigenous group or culture to assert authority over others. It simply provides a foundation on which Indigenous nations and non-Indigenous may determine how they shall coexist with compatible rights of self-determination as equal citizens. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is an aspirational document rather than an instrument of customary international law. But this should not diminish its status or eligibility for inclusion in our list of international instruments establishing universal human rights in our Constitution via the use of Prospect 2. The UNDRIP's nominal status as a declaration rather than as a document accorded status as an international law, makes the human rights included in it no less real and valid, especially insofar as the UNDRIP negates no other right listed in the instruments that are accepted as law. Given that the basis of all the other human rights instruments is to insist that rights are equal for all, and given that official policy in Australia is that, quote, there is no hierarchy or priority of the rights enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, nor are there preconditions imposed on the enjoyment of some of these rights, unquote. 
an insistence by churlish Australian lawyers or policymakers that the Declaration has some sort of lesser status is really nothing more than a lawmaker's feint attempting yet again to subjugate the rights of Indigenes to non-Indigenes. It's nothing more than the usual ploy of the dispossessors, a totally artificial and arbitrary distinction founded on a conception of morality that seeks to justify theft. To insist that the Declaration be excluded from instalment in domestic law, merely because it has not yet been accorded the same customary status in international law as other human rights instruments, would be to break faith with those other instruments. Indeed, excluding the Declaration from designation as law should be seen as a breach of the other treaties. And for as long as the Australian Government continues to maintain the stance that the UNDRIP may be supported, but as no more than a non-legally binding document, that stance should simply be seen for what it is, a government intent on continuing to breach its agreements on human rights. To deny Indigenous rights is to deny that all humans are equal in their rights. And until we can trust the federal government to honour in full the spirit and letter of the UNDRIP, we can in no way trust them to honour any part of any other human rights treaty. With a people's constitution, however, Australians need not be restrained by the ploys of the dispossessors, especially when they have the immoral purpose of creating a hierarchy of people who are entitled to rights, with Indigenes at the bottom and non-Indigenes at the top. That would be a world of reinstalled injustice. In a people's constitution, rights must be the equal property of all. We should be able to work on the understanding that we are free to make our laws as we see fit, in accordance with our values, and can bind our governments legitimately to compliance with those laws precisely because they have been made in accordance with values specified in the Constitution. Accordingly, if the values we share are that everyone should have equal rights, there should be no barrier to including rights established in the UNDRIP in the Australian Constitution. Moreover, if they are not included, we are less likely to be able to settle a stable treaty with First Nations one that is stable because it has been made freely by equals in terms comprehensive enough to achieve a permanent resolution of the conflict occasioned by dispossession. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People includes, among other things, a wide array of rights about lands and, in particular, the government's obligations to, one, give legal recognition and protection to these lands, territories and resources. Two, establish and implement, in conjunction with Indigenous peoples concerned, a fair, independent, impartial, open and transparent process, giving due recognition to Indigenous peoples' laws, traditions, customs and land tenure systems. Three, to recognise and adjudicate the rights of Indigenous peoples pertaining to their lands, territories and resources, including those which were traditionally owned or otherwise occupied or used. Four, to provide, unless otherwise freely agreed upon by the peoples concerned, compensation in the form of lands, territories and resources equal in quality, size and legal status, or of monetary compensation or other appropriate redress. Five, to consult and cooperate 
in good faith with the Indigenous peoples concerned through their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free and informed consent prior to the approval of any project affecting their lands or territories and other resources, particularly in connection with the development, utilisation or exploitation of mineral, water or other resources. Six, to ensure Indigenous lands are not used for military purposes or disposal of hazardous materials and seven, to provide redress by means that can include restitution or, when this is not possible, just, fair and equitable compensation for the lands, territories and resources which have been traditionally owned or otherwise occupied or used and which have been confiscated, taken, occupied, used or damaged without their free, prior and informed consent. In Australia's case... Adherence to these obligations will be a tall order for governments, bearing in mind that almost the entire continent was illegally possessed or alienated in some form by British colonisation without the free, prior and informed consent of Indigenous nations. But again, this is only likely to be a tall order because of politics and patrician attitudes to power. It is not difficult at all from a legal or financial point of view. Indeed, adoption of Prospect 2 would function as the means by which Australians could confer rights of self-determination and security of property on themselves and each other without causing chaos at all. It is probably the only way to achieve this, because enshrinement of all human rights in a constitution as the equal property of all people is the only known and rational way in the Australian Democratic Federation at least, to set down in law a basis for stable governance that tolerates everyone's equal right to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development. It is the only way such a nation can avail itself of the capacity to establish a legitimate people's sovereign will that can accommodate diversity and the peaceable balancing of competing interests. In the same way that it is not practicable to cherry-pick national values and still expect to retain order within the state, it is not possible to cherry-pick human rights that are otherwise acknowledged to be universal and indivisible and still expect that peace can be guaranteed. Full inscription of all human rights, including those under the UNDRIP, is likely to be the only way a treaty with First Nations can be cast in reliable terms. It is therefore the only way to establish a coexistence of sovereignties in which an inclusive order can be safely and fairly maintained. Prospect 2 offers all this because it is built on an acceptance of the propositions on which the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was founded. Propositions which simply accept that order and well-being themselves can only obtain if human rights are conferred in full and equally on all members of the human family. The international treaties and declarations on human rights are founded on the agreed principle that, quote, the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world, unquote. And more that, quote, the ideal of free human beings enjoying civil and political freedom and freedom from fear and want can only be achieved if conditions are created whereby everyone may enjoy their civil and political rights 
as well as their economic, social and cultural rights. Unquote. It is that simple. We cannot thrive at all without rights, and we certainly cannot coexist happily, especially after more than 200 years of colonial disruption and injustice, which in Australia is as yet entirely unresolved. If there is another way to make multiple sovereignties coexist happily, it would seem humankind has not yet discovered it, nor, failing some unanticipated enlightenment, are we likely to, mere mortals that we are. This makes it morally incumbent on parliaments to release Australians from subjection to a life where they have no guarantee of their rights and no power to determine their rights consistent with their aspirations to be a fully democratic nation and with the value they place on social harmony, diversity, inclusion, equality, egalitarianism, equal opportunity, social justice and well-being for all. With a people's constitution, especially one that enshrines a statement of Australian values, perhaps along the lines suggested in Chapter 5, Australians could establish a new framework for a coexistence of multiple sovereignties based on justice and self-determination, just as First Nations have contemplated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The Uluru Statement contains the same enlightened insight as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights into what it is that is essential to the continued existence of the human family. Both statements display a profound understanding of what makes a tolerable existence and ongoing existence itself possible. The universal right of self-determination and the freedom that can only inhere in that right. This might not be surprising since both statements were born directly from an existential crisis. Both were born out of events which threatened the continuous of a human civilization. Both were born from a desire to escape the scourge of war. And both were born from an acute consciousness of how, quote, disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind, unquote. In Australia, as the decades of the 21st century are passing, more and more non-Indigenous Australians are encountering a crisis of conscience about the heinous faults of the nation's founding and the injustice suffered by nations that possessed the country before colonisation. And in the 2020s, as the world faces unprecedented existential threats of climate change and nuclear war, these sorts of statements statements which affirm that human rights are essential to human existence, are probably the only things we have which can supply us with a path to a secure future for all that is not inherently chaotic and destructive and, as a consequence, will not result in the sort of mutually assured destruction that is the inevitable outcome of a war of all against all or a war of all against nature and the planet. For Australians in their lucky country, these statements are all the enlightenment that we need. They light a path to avoidance of a war we cannot win, a war against ourselves. As such, they light the path to a secure peace. A decision to claim those rights and secure them safely in the Constitution in the manner offered under Prospect 2 
has the capacity to pull the nation back from the brink of its destruction and set it on a path to peaceful coexistence of multiple sovereignties within Australia's democracy. Simply by replacing a process which will lead to mutually assured destruction with a process of mutually assured rights, Australia can transform its prospects for security and well-being. Prospect 2 has the necessary capacity for this purpose because it is founded on the principle that human rights are not the gift of governments. They are what we freely give to each other. They are what all member nations of the United Nations since World War II have freely acknowledged as the universal and indivisible entitlement of every single human being. And unless we give them freely and equally to each other and assure each other that they will not be taken away we are not capable of securing a lasting peace. Assured equal human rights are the primordial treaty that underpins and is a prerequisite for all other treaties between nations and particularly between governments established by colonial dispossession and the indigenous nations that have been dispossessed. If a human rights framework is to deliver self-determination, and a peaceful coexistence of sovereignties, this can only arise if Australians freely agree to confer all these rights on themselves and each other equally. Accordingly, in a fully democratic people's constitution, any human rights that are enshrined in it must be the product of a free agreement between all the people. The referendum process in Prospect 2 can enable this free agreement but the exact nature of the agreement itself must be clear. Everyone must be able to understand the terms of the agreement, the fundamental values on which the terms are based, and to confirm that those terms are a mutual commitment that they are prepared to make and be bound by. Here it should be borne in mind that if in an Australian people's constitution the people have already adopted a statement of Australian values, They will have a yardstick that they can use then to determine for themselves that the rights they are agreeing to grant each other on an equal basis are consistent with what they freely value for themselves as individuals and as a nation. Put simply, this means that values should ideally be agreed before rights can be agreed. Unless individuals can be reasonably comfortable that the others who will benefit from the rights hold the same values as they do, it is unlikely that they will have sufficient confidence to trust others with those rights. This in turn suggests that a referendum on human rights would need to be preceded by a referendum on national values. I will talk more about the order in which various issues like this may be solved by community engagement and referendums in Chapter 9. For the moment, it is simply necessary to observe that in the same way that the stated values of Australians should provide the starting point for all laws made in Australia, they should provide the context in which universal human rights are legitimised in Australian law as the indivisible whole that they are. At this point, it might be noted that I have shifted from the concept of a charter of rights to an agreement on rights. This is consistent with a shift from a constitution made at the will of a unitary head of state, to a constitution made at the plural will of the people of that state. A charter is an instrument of a unitary, monarchic, exclusive and therefore essentially undemocratic power. It is, quote, 
A written grant by the sovereign or legislative power of a country by which a body such as a city, company or university is founded or its rights and privileges defined, unquote. But in a people's constitution, the sovereign will that creates the rights and privileges is located in the people, not in the crown or the legislative power as we have known it. Should Australians choose to rely on a notion that rights may only be conferred by the fiat of governments, in other words, should they choose to stick with Prospect 1, then charter is probably the right term for a group of rights in the Constitution. But if a grant of rights is left to a legislative power, then, based on experience to date, Australians might expect to wait a long time for such a gift. As I have already suggested, it is more likely that if Australians really want their rights, they will have to grant them to themselves, and this will entail a shift in lawmaking in which they will have to go around their obstructive governments in order to make an open agreement with each other on these rights and, at the same time, impose obligations on the recalcitrant governments that have become more and more inclined towards denial of rights and abuse of power. Prospect 2 gives the Australian people the means to go around obstructive governments before it is too late. By enshrining an agreement that we freely make with each other, it gives us all the means to ensure that governments will finally act consistent with what is, after all, their current official policy position, that human rights are inherent as the birthright of all human beings and are therefore to be enjoyed by all simply by reason of their humanity rather than granted or bestowed. They are also inalienable in the sense that they cannot be given up or taken away. And they are indivisible, meaning that they cannot be split up with some people enjoying more than others. So if we are to take current official Australian government policy at its word, we should conclude that human rights cannot be conferred or denied by a government by means such as a charter. They can only be secured by an agreement freely entered into by the people themselves. Of course, not everyone will agree with all the values and all the human rights that may from time to time be enshrined in any constitution. But if we establish a process of constitutional reform to enact an Australian people's constitution, and if we ensure that this process is not restricted in its terms of reference and can conduct fully open community engagement, perhaps building on the experience and success of the engagement undertaken in the Referendum Council, which resulted in a high degree of involvement and concurrence on the Uluru Statement from the Heart, then there is no reason why we should not expect that Australians, in a significant majority, will be able to commit to a national agreement on human rights and obligations. To assume otherwise would be to assume that no advanced nation, acting on the basis of an agreed set of values, could cohere on something as fundamental as the right of all humans to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development. Were we to assume that they could not cohere on this as a majority, we would, in logic, have to give up on the entire enterprise of human freedom and accept that we are stuck irreversibly on the path to chaos and self-destruction. For those who are not ready to confine themselves to that destructive path, the following starting draft of a national agreement on human rights and obligations is offered as a contribution to deliberations. 
Readers will note that the starting draft creates a constitutional framework for development, democratic passage, enshrinement and maintenance of the agreement. Because from a constitutional and public interest perspective, the capacity to conduct a fully democratic decision process for enshrining a national agreement on human rights and obligations in the Constitution is as important as the agreement itself. This democratic decision framework is consistent with Prospect 2. It is also very important to note that this proposal for a process to enshrine a national agreement on human rights and obligations is predicated on an assumption that Australians will have already established a statement of Australian values in their constitution that is comprehensive enough to enable them to determine that the rights they are thereby granting to themselves and each other are consistent with their national values. It is also assumed that, as a matter of democratic process, Australians may have participated in one or more plebiscites, that is, non-binding referendums, to get to the point at which an obstructive parliament may approve that a binding referendum question be put to the people of Australia along the lines I have described below and which I have called an inception referendum. There may be other ways to break the vice-like grip parliaments have on what questions may and may not be put to Australians in referendum. If so, we might anticipate that Australians who are eager to bring this new form of protection of their rights into being at last will make suggestions on other ways around the brick wall of that anachronism of contemporary Australia, the Federal Constitution.